Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. A Time Magazine article entitled, How One Woman Won a Marathon and Barely Broke a Sweat, begins this way. To observers at the finish line, Rosie Ruiz must have seemed like the fittest athlete ever to run the Boston Marathon. On this day, April 21st in 1980, the 26-year-old New Yorker finished first among the marathon's women runners in near record time, just over two and a half hours. Even more impressive, when officials crowned her the winner, she was barely sweating. Her hair was still perfectly styled, her face was hardly flushed after the 26-mile race. Ruiz made winning a marathon look easy, and it was, using her signature strategy, don't run the whole thing. It turns out that Rosie, in her desire for marathon glory, entered the race from the sideline just one mile from the finish line. And so she was immediately crowned the winner, but then a few days after the event, some witnesses started coming forward and saying, we saw her enter the race from this point very late in the marathon. And then as they started further questioning, they found out nobody really remembered her either from the beginning of the race or any point within it. Nobody remembered running with her. Nobody else that was watching the race had ever seen her. And so her crown, of course, was stripped away in disgrace. But I wonder if you've ever been tempted to take a shortcut like that. I wonder if maybe you've, you've waited on an opportunity or a relationship or an answer to prayer for what seemed like forever. And at some point, you just decided to take matters into your own hands. In our text today, 1 Samuel chapter 24, David, God's anointed, is going to be tempted with just such a predicament. And we'll learn an important lesson about waiting on God and his timing. So if you have a copy of the Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're continuing our walk through this book. We find David, of course, on the run now. He's been anointed to become king by the prophet Samuel. That anointing was secret. And the current king, Saul, God has rejected him and his kingship because of his own rebellion and disobedience and neglect of God's word time and time again. And yet he's not really giving up the throne. And so he's still on the throne, and he's actually now got his sights on David, who is a threat to his kingship. And so he is actively seeking to kill David. So David, God's anointed, is now a fugitive from the law, and he's been hiding in a cave, and some people have gathered to him. So now he's got a little army of about 600 people. Uh, last week, Pastor Paul told you the story about how he uh, intervened and saved uh, the, the town of Keilah for the people of Israel. And Saul uh, was in pursuit of David and then was distracted uh, in his pursuit by being attacked by the Philistines. So God even used the enemies of the people of Israel to spare David, to save David by distracting Saul. And so now the, the Philistine battle being done with, and the writer doesn't even tell us how that went. He's just not even interested in what happened with Saul and the Philistines. Uh, that battle is apparently done, and now Saul is back with his sights on David. 
uh, and in hot pursuit. And so we'll begin telling the story here in chapter 24. And in these first three verses, opportunity knocks, if, as, as it were. Look at these first few verses. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. All right, so the scene is set. Saul is back on the warpath. He's back to get David. He's got 3,000 guys with him, which is a little bit of overkill probably for David and his 600 broken down, oppressed, distressed people hanging out in a cave. But here comes Saul with 3,000 men to find David. And they pause for a moment because nature calls and Saul walks into a cave. And wouldn't you know it, it's the very cave where David and his men are hiding out. What a strange bit of coincidence, right? So in walks Saul, and he's alone. Because men don't usually go to the bathroom in groups, right? It's the same then as it was now. And he's in the cave. He's utterly unsuspecting, unprepared. He does not expect there's going to be enemies lying in wait in this cave, right? He's just answering nature's call. And so here is Saul in the cave, and here's David and his men. That's Saul. He's alone. His back is turned. He has no idea, right? Now, considering that David has been anointed to become king and that Saul has been rejected by God uh, and God's spirit has departed from him, told us that earlier, and considering that Saul is unjustly seeking David's life, would it be unreasonable to conclude that God had brought Saul into this cave so that David would have an easy opportunity to strike him down? Seems like it might be the case, right? After all, the kingdom would be his. All he's got to do is get Saul out of the way. This unsuspecting guy with his back turned, take him down, and the kingdom's his, right? Seize the day, seize the moment. All he's got to do is take this one little action. And that is exactly the, the perspective taken by David's men. They recognize uh, a stroke of providence when they see it. Let's continue the story. In verses 4 through 7. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now that too if this is a movie and you're watching the scene unfold as Saul leaves the cave, you're thinking, what a missed opportunity, right? The kingdom was yours, David. All you had to do was strike this guy down. 
and he's a wretch, and he's despicable, and he's a murderer, and he deserves it. So just take him, right? And that's what David's men are thinking. They, and they recognize what they think is God's providence in this. God has clearly brought him here so that you could take him down. So why doesn't he do it? If David has this perfect opportunity and the kingdom would be his, which God has promised him after all, why doesn't he do it? Well, verse five tells us why. Because his heart struck him. His heart struck him. This is the familiar, often ignored voice of conscience. Look at the scene a, a bit more closely. So David and his men have become aware of Saul's presence in the cave. And David takes a, a, a stealthy approach. Instead of rushing out to him with, you know, sword drawn and battle screams, and he, he sneaks up on him. Gets really close. Close enough to him to slice off a corner of his robe without him knowing. This is very kind of risky if you think about it. So he's, he's probably crouched down and, and getting there. And if Saul becomes aware at that moment, like David's advantage is gone, right? He's, you know, so it, it's kind of an interesting choice that he makes here. He sneaks up behind him and quietly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And that itself seems like an insignificant detail, unless you remember, if you were reading through 1 Samuel, there might be a recent episode in your memory where Saul was rejected as king and Samuel had come to him to tell him, God has rejected you as king and he had turned to depart and Saul reached out for Samuel and grabbed his robe and tore a piece of Samuel's robe. And Samuel said in uh, chapter 15, verse 27, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That is what Samuel had said to Saul upon the tearing of Samuel's robe. So if you have the, the recent story in your memory, when you come to David cutting off the robe of Saul, it brings that into your mind. This is not the first robe-tearing incident that we've seen. And indeed, the last time it happened, the, the, the tearing of the robe represented a tearing of the kingdom, right? In the way that Samuel interpreted that. God has torn the kingdom from you in the same way. And so because of this episode, uh, to a recent reader of 1 Samuel, this cutting or tearing of the robe has a symbolic sense to it. And it has something to do with the kingdom of God, right? So the, the kingship, the kingdom of God. And so we're aware that the one doing the cutting at this moment is the better neighbor of whom Samuel spoke when he told Saul that the kingdom had, that he had been rejected and given to a neighbor who was better than you. And now here is the better neighbor kneeling secretly behind Saul and cutting off a piece of his robe. Interesting bit of symbolism there. And we're reminded of the kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom. And apparently, David is reminded of the kingdom as well. And the fact that Saul was once anointed by God to serve his people as their king. Because even this symbolic act is too much for him. He cuts the robe and immediately his heart struck him. He had that pang of conscience. This is not right. I've not done what is right. Even this symbolic act of treachery crosses a line in David's mind and heart. And so he immediately regrets that he's done it and then goes back to his men to say, we cannot strike down the Lord's anointed. 
And all of this because of the pang of conscience, that, that, that voice of conscience. What a good gift your conscience is. I wonder if you're aware of it as often as you should be. God has written his law upon our hearts, and he often guides us to holiness through the voice of conscience. Often you intuitively know when something is right or wrong because of that nagging inner voice. Sometimes it's kind of annoying, right? Go away. I want to do this thing that you're telling me not to do, right? We shouldn't mystify this too much as though we're receiving some special message from God. But we should receive the counsel of our conscience as guidance from the Holy Spirit. Because a conscience informed by the word of God and submitted to the glory of Christ is a powerful tool in the life of a Christian. And we ignore it to our own peril and to the dishonoring of Christ and the weakening of the church and a hundred other consequences. So the the gift of conscience ought not to be missed. And so David here has this this conscience uh, when he cuts the robe and now he has to explain it to his men. Now his men are even more excited about this opportunity than David is. Because David's like taking his time and being careful and sneaking up and all this. And the men are like, let's go get him, right? They're so exuberant about this stroke of divine providence that they're basically on their way to the mouth of the cave with weapons out, ready to strike Saul down. And so David has to stop them. He explains to them in verse 6, the Lord, that is, remember when you see the Lord in all caps, that is the name of God, Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh forbid that I should put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed, right? So David is remembering who, not who Saul is as a person, but who he represents as the king of Israel, the one who had been chosen and anointed by God. And he says, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, whose honor do you think David is defending here? Do you think he's concerned for Saul's honor? No way. Saul is despicable. Saul is a murderer. Saul has made very clear his intentions for a long time to kill David for no good reason except jealousy over his own kingdom and trying to maintain his own power. David is not concerned about Saul's honor, but Yahweh's. Striking Saul seems reasonable given the circumstances, but in David's heart, it would be a strike against God himself since God had anointed Saul as king. And so David here provides us with a shining example of the fear of God. What it means to fear God. The Bible calls us to fear God. In fact, Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And David shows us here exactly what it means to live our lives and make decisions in a way that gives priority to the glory and honor of God above all other considerations. Will my actions, will my words honor God or dishonor him? And that is the first and utmost consideration in David's heart. Would it be convenient to strike Saul down? Yes. Would it be easy to strike Saul down? Yes. Would he get the kingdom finally? Yes. Would that in a way be bringing into effect something that God had promised him would happen? Yes. But is this Yahweh's way? No. Would Yahweh be honored 
by him striking down the Lord's anointed, David's conclusion is he would not. And therefore, he cannot. Brothers and sisters, this is how we should live. God should hold in our hearts such a place of reverence and honor that the thought of violating his commands grieves us and seems unthinkable to us. When you're faced with a decision, a dilemma, give the glory of God veto power, if you will, to override any decision for the sake of his honor. When circumstances suggest one action, when friends and neighbors suggest one action, when family members are pressing on you to do one thing, if the glory of God would be diminished by your doing that thing, don't do it, right? That is what the fear of God dictates. That's what it looks like in action. And David gives us a really good picture of that here. There's one more thing to draw out here before we move on to, to the rest of this story. David's men were so certain of the rightness of killing Saul that they apparently put words into God's mouth and they quote to him a promise from God that God apparently never gave. There's no scripture that they're citing here when it says that God would give his enemy into their hands to do whatever seems good to you. And in this very account of David and on the run from Saul, we have no written record that that is something that was said to him. So if it were a promise given perhaps through uh, the, the priest uh, back when David had sought him out, uh, we haven't heard about it. This is the first time it shows up on the lips of David's overzealous men for the striking down of Saul. So it seems that they are putting words into God's mouth and sort of claiming for themselves a promise that God never actually gave. They're saying, God promised that he would give you the soul into your hand to do with him as you please. And now here he is. And if that promise is true, then of course you're supposed to go strike him down. But it doesn't, it seems that David never actually received that promise from God. But they are so certain that this is God's will that they insist it is what God has promised. And I think at times we can be guilty of the same kind of thing. The same overconfidence, ascribing to God a promise or a guarantee that he didn't actually give. When a loved one is sick and you're praying for healing, it's very easy to think God promised that he'll be healed. When a job opportunity is on the line and you're praying for provision, it's very easy to think, well, God promised that he'd provide this job. When heart desires like marriage or children are weighing heavy on your heart, things that you don't yet have, and you're praying for these gifts, right? It's very easy to think, God promised me a husband or a child or this or that, right? It's very easy to slip into this overconfidence about what we think God has promised to give us. When in reality, he has not made those specific promises. At times we can act and speak as though God promised us these particular blessings, when in fact, we simply don't know his will in most of these cases. For David, one thing was certain, the kingdom would be his. But most of the time in our cases, the matter is not even that sure. David at least has a promise. He's been anointed by God. God has said, you will be the king of my people. 
So he knows that much. He has that firm promise to stand on. But a lot of times the things that we cling to and that we are so confident this is what God wants, we don't have any such promise. Even if we go to his word, you're not going to find a particular word on our particular situation or our particular desire or need. And so we have to find bigger promises, better promises, longer lasting, forward-looking promises to think, what has God guaranteed will happen? Well, we know we're going to have hardship. Jesus has promised that, right? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, said Paul. So we know that much, but we also know that he's promised us his presence. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That came from the mouth of Jesus to his disciples. So we know we have his presence. We know we have the promise of an eternal salvation and a future that is stored up and being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, remember ladies, First Peter, right? All right, so we know we have these promises. And in the midst of our burdens and our unanswered prayers or prayers we think are unanswered, our unmet expectations of God, we would do well to remember what has God promised and let's lean on those. Let's bank on those. But let's not assume that God has promised where God has not indeed promised. Let's trust that God knows best. Let's hold our desires humbly with open hands and trust in God's goodness. So, David persuades his men to relent. And he chooses to show mercy to Saul. And as Saul leaves the cave, David makes his presence known and delivers a stunning speech. So look with me at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed, Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What an amazing speech in an amazing moment as Saul becomes aware of the danger he just unknowingly escaped having been in the cave where David was. And so David comes to him with the robe in his hand. Look at this. I could have had you. 
If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead right now. So you can know with certainty there is no treason in me. I have no intention of killing you, of striking you down. And Saul has, has even convinced himself that David is seeking his life. And we've heard him speak that way to his people, to his own followers and, and servants. And so Saul is, in his own sort of murderous rage, has twisted the script as though David is the one pursuing him. And David says, why do you listen to that madness? Here I am with your robe in my hand. Could have killed you and I didn't do it. So may it be known to you that there is no treachery in me. And he calls himself, he says, what are you after? A dead dog, a flea. Like, so harmless am I to you. And here you are with, you know, 3,000 men trying to hunt me down. The key point of David's, David's speech here occurs twice. In verse 12 and verse 15. Look at those verses again. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then down again in verse 15, may Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What's he saying here? He's saying, I'm not taking justice into my own hands. I'm gonna wait on God's justice. I'm gonna let vengeance be the Lord's. He surely knows Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36, where Yahweh says this, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. God has given that principle to his people long ago. I am the avenger. You do not seek justice. You do not execute justice on the wicked. Leave it to me. And what does he mean by that? I will do it. God's justice is sure. It is inevitable. He will punish the wicked. There will be no overlooked sin in the universe. It either gets punished at the cross of Calvary or it gets punished in sinners paying their debts eternally. There is no overlooked sin. God is judge. And what David is saying here is, you don't have to worry about my justice. You don't have to worry about me being your judge because you've got a lot bigger judge to deal with. So when he says, yet let Yahweh pass judgment between me and you, what's he saying? He's essentially saying, Lord, strike down my enemies. And we have psalms like that all over the, the psalm book. And, and sometimes we read these, they're called the imprecatory psalms because they often are praying for God to strike down his enemies, right? And it feels weird to us and we don't know what to do with that. Well, I thought we were supposed to pray for mercy and kindness and compassion and love. And here he is like praying that their teeth would be knocked out and that, you know, they'd be struck down and be made fools of and this kind of thing. That's a biblical prayer, right? That's a biblical heart. I'm not going to do that. I'm not knocking people's teeth out. I'm not after like making sure somebody knows how bad they are, but God will. Vengeance is mine. And David here is waiting. <laughs> David here said, I could have seized the kingdom. I could have taken the opportunity and struck down Saul and, and the kingdom would be mine. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not exercising justice here. I'm waiting on God in his timing which right now means 
I'm going to keep being on the run. That's what this means for David, to not have taken justice into his own hands. It's not a small decision. It means, yes, yeah, Saul's probably going to keep trying to hunt me down, and I'm going to have to keep living on the run until God does something to get him out of the way, right? But I will not stand in the place of Yahweh and judge on his behalf. The Apostle Paul takes up the teaching of Deuteronomy 32 in Romans chapter 12 where he urges Christians in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we probably remember never avenge yourselves, but what we tend to think of on the flip side of that coin is, but always show mercy and kindness, things like that. Which actually Paul goes there next. He says, don't ever repay evil for evil. And, and you know, be kind to your enemies and, and that kind of thing. But the, the understood reality there is that justice will be served. It's just as God's to give and not ours. So David casts his case upon the patient justice of God, knowing that in God's time, he will be vindicated. Maybe you found yourself in a situation that just is unjust, where you've been mistreated, you've been misrepresented, you've been in the middle of controversies where people have looked at you negatively, where you really honestly bear no wrongdoing or no guilt, and you think, when will this end? Look to God. Wait on his justice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Entrust yourself to God and his timing. In this way, David images for us the Lord Jesus. I'm going to turn to 1 Peter and read a few verses there. David really gives us a, a beautiful picture of submission to the judgment of God and the authority of God. And Jesus is the perfect embodiment of that. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's speaking to different groups, different classes, if you will, of people and giving them instructions about how to live godly lives. And he's speaking to, uh, to servants, uh, and he tells them uh, to suffer injustice with patience and, and graciousness. And he says, for to this you have been called, this is verse 21 of chapter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus was doing when he endured suffering for our sake. He was entrusting himself to the Father and His justice. It's going to come. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus Christ entrusted Himself to the wise and patient justice of God the Father. And he calls us to do the same. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't seize the kingdom, as it were. Wait. Trust God. 
look to him. Well, the last few verses of this chapter, David receives a reassuring word from an unlikely place based on on Saul's response. Look at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul's response here is uncharacteristically humble, right? You're more righteous than I am. You've done the right thing when I've done the wrong thing. But more importantly, For the first time, we hear Saul acknowledge what we've known for a long time. The kingdom will be David's. It is certain, he says, that you shall be king. This is the first time Saul has acknowledged this truth. And he says it publicly. It's not just a private conversation between Saul and David. It's in front of David's men. It's in front of Saul's own men. His 3,000 men have all heard this proclamation now. David shall surely be king. There's no backing this one up, you know. Well, no, that's not really what I meant. We all heard you say it, dude. You were saying David will be the king. God has chosen David to be the king, and Saul has finally acknowledged this plain truth. Now, David's not naive enough to believe that this is a turning point for Saul, and uh, that he somehow had a change of heart and now is going to give up his pursuit and bow and hand over the kingdom to David. We know Saul better than that already. And in the next chapter, David's still on the run, right? So this, this is a moment of clarity. This is a momentary uh, a lapse, if you will, from Saul's normal sort of breathing of threats and, and, and vengeance. But God here, I believe, is giving this message of reassurance to David through the mouth of Saul. Very unexpected way. So David has this moment where he could claim the kingdom, could seize the kingdom by killing Saul, and he doesn't do it for the sake of Yahweh's honor. And so I think Yahweh here, God here, delivers to David a reassurance. It's not over yet. The kingdom will be yours. I'm still working here. The kingdom is not lost. My purposes for you will be fulfilled. My promise is as sure as ever. And so David has to simply rest and wait and trust that God is going to do what God has promised he's going to do. Christian, what are you waiting for today? Where are you tempted to believe that God will never come through or that God's word will never come about? In what ways might you be tempted to create shortcuts to your desired outcome? 
like Rosie Ruiz and starting the Boston Marathon at the last mile. Put your eyes on God. Look to his word. Trust his promises. Wait for his timing and rest assured he will come through on his promise. If you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you today to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, as sinners who have rebelled against a holy God, we are just as helpless before him as Saul was before David in that cave with his back turned. God would be right in condemning us, in sending us to hell for eternity to punish our sins. But instead, in an act of unfathomable mercy, God put forward his own son, the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice for sins, to suffer and die in our place. Just as David had mercy on Saul and spared his life in the cave, God will have mercy on any who will call upon the name of Jesus and trust in his atoning death for their forgiveness. There's good news for all of us in that because we're all in need of that grace and of that mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for a reminder of your wisdom and of your ways, which are higher than ours, different from ours. We confess that at times we don't understand what you're doing, and it might look to our eye like you've stopped or you've disappeared. But Lord, help us to confess by faith that we know you to be true to your word. We know you to be working for your kingdom, for your glory, for your church, and for your people. Wherever we are in our lives, in those moments of uncertainty or of tension, please help us today to rest in your care, in your wisdom, in your justice, and to wait for you. Lord, if there's anyone in the room today that has not trusted in Jesus as Savior and rested their lives upon the finished work that he accomplished at the cross, Father, we pray that today would be a day of clarity, a day of repentance, a day of salvation. Father, help us to trust you and to live our lives with your glory at the front of our minds and that's the highest value in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.